No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating her citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today? So today we're beginning a new series of episodes here on the show where we break down historical speeches, rallies, and debates, and why they were so powerful and impactful at the time. You're going to get a glimpse into the backbone of what makes modern-day politicians do what they do and how they're able to captivate the audiences and demonstrate strong leadership. Now, today we're going to begin with a speech by Barack Obama. This was one of the profound speeches that undoubtedly led him to victory in 2008. And to join us in breaking down this speech and to learn more about it is our special guest, Tracy Denean Sharpley-Whiting. Tracy is the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Distinguished Professor of Humanities at Vanderbilt University the chair of the Department of African American and Diaspora Studies, and the editor of the anthology, The Speech, Race, and Barack Obama's More Perfect Union. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So give us a little background on you, what perspectives you're coming from with this, and what has made this speech so interesting to you? Right. I think um, certainly one could do their own work on the speech itself, um, and probably um, tie it into what is called the African-American Jeremiah. But I think what interested me most uh, about it was the fact that um, the speech was able to uh, capture the attention of, you know, what we would call millennials um, and, uh, and, and simultaneously everyone else. Uh, and so um, I, I think I was, I was quite fascinated by Obama's appeal and the speech and the ways in which it also, you know, essentially galvanized his base and saved his candidacy um, by using certain rhetorical strategies, by uh, appealing to this idea of an inclusive American identity uh, that had been so um, something that we, we were striving for as a nation, but we hadn't quite reached. And I think the, the hopefulness of the speech and the hopefulness of most Americans, although they know we're not there, that they want to get there. And so there was something about what he was doing there that I thought was quite fascinating. Um, now, naturally, when you have an anthology, you have people coming from different perspectives. And this is what we wanted. We wanted a diversity of opinions. 
on Obama's um, speech. And so there are some folks who absolutely did not find the speech as thrilling um, and had critiques about it politically and strategically with respect to questions of race and racism and the ways in which it um, conflated institutional racism with white people's feelings. And so we attempted to bring all of that together in this anthology so that the essay spoke to one another, uh, picked up sometimes where others left off, um, as well as historicized um, the speech with respect to um, other speeches um, in the hall of, um, of great, uh, great American speeches, as well as, you know, great African-American speeches. Great. And so uh, we're going to listen to a couple of moments from this speech. And before we get into this, um, since we know that you enjoy this type of deep dive into political persuasion that we're doing, I would like to invite you to consider supporting our mission here. Time is running out to support this show this month, which means that it's now time for you, the listener, to chip in. Each month we have server costs as well as the time spent developing the show. And to protect our independence, we never run ads. So your support today keeps us on the air tomorrow. And it keeps this great content coming to you. So please take a moment, head on over to our website um, in the top right corner you can um, support the show that's the support us tab at sublimallycorrect.com now this speech here was given on march 18th 2008 in pennsylvania where obama was about a month away from his next primary and this speech uses a tremendous amount of thematic appeals and many people after listening to it wanted to take action and join the movement but before that moment before that speech there was a ton of outrage at a particular pastor that Obama had an affiliation with. Now, this was Reverend Jeremiah Wright that was the pastor of the Trinity Church in Chicago that Obama had been um, attending services. And he had given one particular sermon that had you know, made the rounds um, in the political news media right before Obama's speech and sort of riled up a lot of conservatives and Clinton supporters as well in sort of calling for Obama to either denounce the comments or to uh, drop out altogether as an unfit candidate with un-American ideals. So we're going to listen to what Jeremiah said that prompted this speech to begin with right now. Where governments lie, God does not lie. Where governments change, God does not change. And I'm through now. But let me leave you with one more thing. Governments fail. The government in this text, comprised of Caesar, Quirinius, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman government failed. The British government used to rule from east to west. The British government had a union jack. She colonized Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, and Hong Kong. Her navies ruled the seven seas all the way down to the tip of Argentina in the Falklands. But the British government failed. The Russian government failed. The Japanese government failed. The German government failed. And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent, 
fairly, she failed. She put them on reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America that's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Wow. So that is what Obama had to contend with. And probably about the last oh, 20 or 30 seconds of that clip there is what was being played again and again and again on the on the news media. Um, so, Tracy, what can you tell us about the historical context, you know, coming coming up to this and what made uh, Jeremiah Wright's comments something that Obama had to had to address, you know, so fully there. Like, why was this the something that Obama was addressing so completely in his speech? Well, I think, first of all, let me commend you for giving more context to what Jeremiah Wright was saying, because oftentimes all that was, you know, of course, being, uh, you know, aired in these like you know, 20 second loops or whatever, 10 second loops was the goddamn America part. Whereas we see right leading up to where he gets himself worked up with respect to um, his, you know, denunciation of America until America was able to right its wrongs. So, so to speak. So I think on, on the one hand, we have to understand what Jeremiah Wright, the tradition uh, black preaching in which Jeremiah Wright was coming out of. And of course, he was borrowing from the, and just the, the tradition, the Christian tradition of the Jeremiah, which in fact, you know, you begin by first evoking a kind of hopefulness of what the promise of America was, right? That it's supposed to deliver on certain things. Um, and then you, the second part, it's a, it's, it's a three-part kind of structure, the Jeremiah. The second part is where you um, enumerate all of the wrongs, all of the misdeeds um, that America or any other. Of course, you know um, the Jer you know Jeremiah is from the you know Old Testament, so you know he was you know the the Jews were denounced for some of their you know um, wrongheadedness um, as they were escaping Egypt and, and did not adhere totally to their um, to the greatness that um, had been bestowed upon them. Um, and so in this case, the United States was being um, challenged um, in that second part. The third part, of course, which where he works himself up is, well, goddamn America, until America lives up to its creed. Um, and there's still 
the hopefulness there that it possibly can, that one has to hold out hope that America will live up to its creed. But in the meantime, one has to denounce America um, for what it has done to all of its citizens. Um, not just black citizens, um, but, you know, Asian citizens, um, Native American citizens, the poor, white poor. And what we find, of course, is that oftentimes a lot of white working class don't necessarily identify um, as being victimized in certain ways um, and attempt to also project their resentments onto um, people of color uh, or immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the boogeyman might be at the moment politically. Um, and being used politically in certain um, sorts of ways. So I think, so Obama was against, up against a, old, a Jeremiah tradition, um, um, you know, the kind of faith uh, and preaching of a black church, which most people understood. They did not think Jeremiah Wright was crazy, which is what Obama and them initially tried to um, trot out. The excuse was that, you know, Wright was the crazy uncle. Um, that wasn't working. Uh, and so he was in many respects forced to give that speech. He had to deal head on with the question of race and racism. In the United States, we like to talk about race um, when in fact what we're really talking about is racism. Uh, but people were very uncomfortable using that word. And so Obama knew that he had to deal with these particular questions um, and he had to deal with the history to try to give more context to why Wright was preaching what he was preaching, as well as why Wright has such a large congregation um, and why he himself would sit there um, and, you know, and worship with Wright. Um, so he had to he had to he was forced um, in that moment to give that speech. The 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 you know, he had done the rounds and it, it just wasn't working. And so in many respects, Obama's back was was against the wall. Um, and, and otherwise, we probably would not have had this speech. Right. We're, we're sort of in, in a world where Obama has to um, provide that extra context around the speech, because what we see here in the clips that we're about to play in this episode and next are, you know, Obama here is not necessarily disowning Reverend Wright. And what we'll see here and what we'll talk about is how Obama, in fact, embraces, leans into Reverend Wright and then broadens the discussion out further from Reverend Wright to a larger discussion on race and the black experience in America. So we're going to get to the first clip here where Obama starts by captivating the audience with a classic line from a classic text. So let's listen in and see what he says. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, 221 years ago, in a hall that still stands across the street, a group of men gathered and with these simple words launched America's improbable experiment in democracy. Farmers and scholars, statesmen and patriots who had traveled across the ocean to escape tyranny and persecution, finally made real their declaration of independence at a Philadelphia convention that lasted through the spring of 1787. The document they produced was eventually signed, but ultimately unfinished. It was stained by this nation's original sin of slavery, a question that divided the colonies and brought the convention to a stalemate until the founders chose to allow the slave trade to continue, 
for at least 20 more years and to leave any final resolution to future generations. Of course, the answer to the slavery question was already embedded within our Constitution, a Constitution that had at its very core the ideal of equal citizenship under the law, a Constitution that promised its people liberty and justice and a union that could be and should be perfected over time. And yet words on a parchment would not be enough to deliver slaves from bondage or provide men and women of every color and creed their full rights and obligations as citizens of the United States. That what would be needed were Americans in successive generations who were willing to do their part through protests and struggles on the streets and in the courts through a civil war and civil disobedience and always at great risk to narrow that gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. This was one of the tasks we set forth at the beginning of this presidential campaign, to continue the long march of those who came before us, a march for a more just, more equal, more free, more caring, and more prosperous America. I chose to run for president at this moment in history because I believe deeply that we cannot solve the challenges of our time unless we solve them together, unless we perfect our union by understanding that we may have different stories, but we hold common hopes, that we may not look the same and may not have come from the same place, but we all want to move in the same direction towards a better future for our children and our grandchildren. Well, let me say first, Obama does a great job of historicizing uh, the history of the nation um, and the importance of the um, Constitutional Convention and the disagreements. Of course, we understand that when Jefferson first drew up the um, Declaration of Independence, initially he denounced slavery um, and blamed um, the um, odious institution on the British and on um, King George. And of course, the other founders objected um, to that being included um, in the Declaration. By the time we get to the Constitution, of course, um, all the founders, of course, the slaveholders. And so um, they had to, I mean, they were attempting to forge a democracy um, and understanding that it was an experiment um, and simultaneously turning a blind eye to those who were unfree, um, as well as women, um, as well as those who were not uh, landowners. And so there were lots of inequalities that were coexisting uh, at the founding of the nation. Um, but nonetheless, both documents, the Declaration of Independence, which of course lends itself also to, um, you know, the, the um, Constitution itself, um, were, are, are absolutely marvelous documents and inspirational um, documents for a great deal of other countries, even at that moment in the 18th century. I mean, we understand that these documents inspired revolutions in various places like Haiti. Um, certainly that was not the intention, but that, <laughs> that, but that it did. So, um, 
I think there were debates always around whether the Constitution, though, the do that particular document was a pro-slavery document. Um, and Frederick Douglass, you know, a um, runaway slave who would become, you know, a master orator, et cetera, um, of course, embrace that document as a document that held up freedom. Whereas um, William Lloyd Garrison believed it was a pro-slavery document. So these debates were going, uh, were always raging. Um, and Obama was right that it took um, men and women to continue to kind of perfect the union, whether it were through protests, uh, fortunately, civil war, um, and other sorts of, you know, legal um, strategies, et cetera, in order to push America to live up to its creed. And what he attempts to do in broader strokes then is to frame his campaign in that larger kind of narrative of American exceptionalism and hopefulness. And is this this is the the first part of that three-part structure of the Jeremiah that you were referencing? Yes. This, Obama's Jeremiah moves from the traditional structure of the African-American Jeremiah and even the Jeremiah itself. I mean, he does a bit of it, um, but his is a bit, you know, his is a bit more hopeful um, than, and certainly not as damning um, as other Jeremiah structure. But yes, that's the first part of it, kind of laying it out, you know, where there's this hopefulness and then, of course, he moves into the other structure where it's failed. And we see that a lot in what Obama uh, does in his speeches. He really structures a lot of them. And I've said this in some of our previous Obama episodes, if you, the listener, want to go back and, and uh, review some of those. What we've got is sort of the story of us. It's that uh, that larger overarching narrative. He always starts by broadening out to like where we've been where we are and where we are going. He breaks down his speeches into this, this structure. And this is it again, him rewinding all the way back to the founding documents of the entire country to broaden the listener's mind out of that immediacy of the moment and think of this in a larger context of greater values and where we really stand in a historical or universal sense. Yeah, and there's there's so many things that are implied by the context in which he's giving the speech. So we have him having the reaction to Jeremiah Wright's comments, and then the speech was also given in Pennsylvania. And so a couple of things about that. So the Constitution was signed there. Um, the, you know, Pennsylvania was an important state for Obama to win. He actually didn't, uh, win it. Hillary Clinton got a few more, you know, delegates in that state, but even so, you know, it was something where he needed to show us a, a strong showing there. And in the Philadelphia Con constitution center where Obama was, there were a number of American flags everywhere. And these flags were actually placed strategically so that from any camera angle, he could be viewed with a flag. And so these were subtle reminders of this patriotism issue that Obama wanted to address, given the what some might call anti-patriotic comments by Jeremiah Wright. And so let's break down some of the language here, some of these specific rhetorical devices that he's using that are you know, bringing in that what makes it so compelling because if you've been listening to this show for a while you know that a lot of times when people give these big you know heartwarming speeches about the history of america um 
for some reason that it kind of has a callback depending on your particular associations with that depends on what emotional association you're going to get. But for a lot of people, it's kind of this warm, fuzzy feeling. Now, why? Why does it produce such that type of feeling? You know, consider what is it that he's doing here. So he says, you know, a hall that still stands across the street. And he's bringing the experience now from something that happened way back in the past, now into the mundane, the modern world. He's bridging what happened back then to what's happening now. And then he uses words like America's improbable experiment in democracy. And so by terming it an improbable experiment, it creates this sense of fate that the reason this worked was because of kismet or, you know, some external force, you know, perhaps God. It gives this impression of chaos moving into order. And he talks about this idea of original sin. Well, original sin, of course, is the biblical reference. And this is, you know, very powerful for him because when Obama has aligned himself both with country and with God, he becomes much more untouchable from a moral or religious standpoint. You know, he puts himself into that position of saying, well, this is, you know, who I am and this is what I'm aligned with. It's kind of hard to argue with a vast backdrop of religion when he, you know, brings himself, you know, into that. And then I really like this this phrase here where he says, to narrow that gap between the promise of our ideals and the reality of their time. And so we hear a little bit of the language that Pete Buttigieg, for example, may have modeled here. You know, we've talked on the show about how, you know, Mayor Pete almost certainly had been studying and listening to speeches of Obama just based on how he constructed it. Um, that difference between ideals and reality. And it's that classic structure that everyone's familiar with, that ideals are one thing, but what reality actually produces is quite another. And, you know, that's at multiple levels. So can we strive to meet our ideals? And then he ends it, ends this clip on talking about that march. Now, what kind of march is he talking about here? Well, obviously, you know, that means a metaphorical march, but he actually also means an actual march, marching for something, marching for a promise, marching for a principle, or marching in order to get equal rights in the civil rights movement. Well, I also want to say that besides the Jeremiah tradition he's drawing upon, um, he also is um, using um, the rhetorical principles that Aristotle of course, um, taught centuries ago, um, and that's namely ethos, in which you know there's a kind of persuasion based on the speaker's personal character, and so it's precisely you know as you've as you've discussed the ways in which the flags are are strategically placed around him to challenge this question of his patriotism, um, as well as his standing in this hall of we the people, and he is a part of that we the people. Um, and of course there by turns his, and of course when he gets into his personal narrative, right? And then there's logos, right? And so the, that's the persuasive appeal based on reason. Um, and so he's doing a wonderful job of blending, um, at various moments in the speech and in that clip, the 
you know, ethos with the logos. Now, in this next clip, we get into a little bit of Obama's background. What is his story? Again, this is a rhetorical technique Obama uses again and again and again that's very persuasive and serves to humanize Obama, but then also bridge that connection between Obama's story and the story of our nation. So let's take a listen to this section. This belief comes from my unyielding faith in the decency and generosity of the American people. But it also comes from my own story. I'm the son of a black man from Kenya and a white woman from Kansas. I was raised with the help of a white grandfather who survived a depression to serve in Patton's army during World War II, and a wild white grandmother who worked on a bomber assembly line at Fort Leavenworth while he was overseas. I've gone to some of the best schools in America, and I've lived in one of the world's poorest nations. I am married to a black American who carries within her the blood of slaves and slave owners, an inheritance we pass on to our two precious daughters. I have brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uncles, and cousins of every race and every hue scattered across three continents. And for as long as I live, I will never forget that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. It's a story that hasn't made me the most conventional of candidates. But it is a story that has seared into my genetic makeup the idea that this nation is more than the sum of its parts. That out of many, we are truly one. Now, throughout the first year of this campaign, against all predictions to the contrary, uh, we saw how hungry the American people were for this message of unity. Despite the temptation to view my candidacy through a purely racial lens, we won commanding victories in states with some of the whitest populations in the country. In South Carolina, where the Confederate flag still flies, we built a powerful coalition of African Americans and white Americans. This is not to say that race has not been an issue in this campaign. At various stages in the campaign, some commentators have deemed me either too black or not black enough. We saw racial tensions bubble to the surface during the week before the South Carolina primary. The press has scoured every single exit poll for the latest evidence of racial polarization, not just in terms of white and black, but black and brown as well. And yet, it's only been in the last couple of weeks that the discussion of race in this campaign has taken a particularly divisive turn. On one end of the spectrum, we've heard the implication that my candidacy is somehow an exercise in affirmative action, that is based solely on the desire of wild and wide-eyed liberals to purchase rec uh, racial reconciliation on the cheap. On the other end, we've heard my former pastor, Jeremiah Wright, use incendiary language to express views that have the potential not only to widen the racial divide, but views that denigrate both the greatness and the goodness of our nation and that rightly offend white and black alike. Okay, and I stopped it there. We've got Obama here um, taking that story of him and who he is, his race, and broadening that to uh, you know really be an allegory for the nation. The nation's motto there, e pluribus unum, out of many, 
there is one sort of is an allegory for Obama and his relationship with race of having a multiracial uh, background with, you know, uh, siblings and cousins and uh, family of every race and every creed from all around the earth, just like America. And it's almost a way of him creating, you know, a um, ideal, a, a relationship between um, his Americanness through the idea that America is a melting pot in and of itself. And that is what makes him fundamentally American. And it's a way for him to bridge that connection in the listener's mind um, to sort of dispel any ideas that Obama himself is un-American in any way. That and the fact that he's attempting to, he has to deal with the, his namesake, right? The, <laughs> you know, he is Barack Hussein Obama. Um, and so it is important for him to consistently bring up this, you know, um, folksy kind of, you know, um, um, place in the Midwest um, of the United States um, and this white woman um, from this particular part of the country that grounds him and his grandfather's participation um, in World War II. Um, so these are very important parts of the narrative um, that further, that offer some distance um, in his, well, at least he's hoping in the minds of those who question whether or not he's American, right? Because these are one of the challenges that he was constantly, it wasn't just he wasn't patriotic, it was questions about his citizenship, um, whether he actually was American. And so he wants this story to be understood um, this multiracial, multicultural story to be understood as part of the great American story. But it's not just his story. He makes it very clear that it's also his wife's story, because that is also one of the uh, larger issues and problems and his children's story in the whole understanding of America and American slavery, that somehow blacks were always divided when, in fact, they were very intimately Connected, And we know that from Thomas Jefferson in a recent book that just came out on James Madison. Um, so so that despite all of the um, laws forbidding, you know, certain intimacies and segregation, that most African-Americans have a braided story. Obama's just is more prominent because he has a white mother um, and. He is also very strategic in using his mother and that and his family, um, not in a way that I would say is exploitative, but certainly in a way to remind and to reassure white voters that he, in fact, is one of them and he understands their story. Yeah, the Midwest thing, you know, really helps with that. And he's he's establishing credibility, you know, by talking about his educational background and how he's been to some of the best schools, especially Harvard. This actually really cements him and, well, you know, how are you going to argue with this guy? You know, he's been to the best schools. He, you know, is an American citizen because, of course, we have his birth certificate to prove that, right? And he he has aligned himself then with God and country and education and the Midwest. And so, yeah, I think he he's just doing a really good job here of both at the same time doing so this is something that i think that a lot of 
politicians struggle with. You know, they struggle with how do they demonstrate how they are unique, but also the same. And what Obama does here is he really talks about his in one way uniqueness, the diversity of his background, but he doesn't use it as a way of saying that I am different from you. He's saying because of the diversity, that means that I am the same as you. That means that I can understand you no matter what race, you know, you come to this whole thing, you know, from. And we hear the liberal framing, the oneness based liberal framing of, you know, out of many, we are truly one. And you know, it's a nice little word thing that he does there. And he's also beginning this rhythm of two things, this and that, this and that. So grandma and grandpa, white and black, slave and slave owner. And so when he starts that rhythm of being able to talk, and it's it's a rhythm in the words that he's using, but of course he also has that kind of hypnotic cadence that he goes into there when he starts to describe these things that really brings a person to a place where they are hearing his message at an emotional level, at a feeling level, rather than, you know, thinking about it, you know, too critically and really getting that feeling of oneness, that feeling of connection, which is going to be different from maybe what their defensiveness, um, you know, their defensive filters, you know, have to, have to do with that. And so really, you know, this kind of thing is so interesting because when we look at this from a neuroscience perspective, that we know that people can feel safe or they can feel unsafe. And when they're unsafe, what happens is that they tend to resort back to the lowest, you know, levels of their nature. And they tend to, you know, shrink their group, you know, like we're seeing actually what's happening now in the world. They tend to shrink their group of what the, who they feel is close to them. They tend to become more um, protective, more suspicious of others. Um, and yet what Obama does here with this language is, is that he's broadening it out. And through a speech, through conversation, He's able to create that sense of relaxation, of oneness, of we're all in this together, which has them relax and then eventually be able to take on ideas that they might not have been able to take on before. So it's, it's just so fascinating hearing here how he does this and mixes them all together in this way. Well, he also does another interesting thing, right? He's attempting really to, to tamp down white anxiety, um, particularly white working class anxiety um, and, you know, which oftentimes, you know, his Republican opponents would be exploiting, right, to kind of, um, again, make um, him other, make, you know, racial minorities other, et cetera, et cetera, make, you know, immigrants other, um, which would induce a certain um, anxiety, which would compel them to vote in ways that are not always in their best interest, which studies after studies have shown. Um, and so he's being very strategic here. He's also, he never names her, but he, when he brings up this question of affirmative action um, and kind of rake, racial reconciliation purchased on the cheap, what he's also attempting to, to get at is the person who makes that charge um, is a Clinton surrogate, which is Geraldine Ferraro, right? And as if her candidacy, candidacy as VP on the Mondale ticket was not about her being a woman, was not itself 
in fact, owing to affirmative action. Um, and so what he's also attempting to do by bringing this up is he's broadening again the language and the understanding around affirmative action, that this is not just um, a policy that has benefited black people. Right. It is a policy that at its core has greatly benefited white women. Um, so he's being very strategic here as he's as he's trotting out these particularly incendiary critiques and racist remarks, actually, about his candidacy. Wow. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, when we get into this next clip here, we're going to see Obama embrace Reverend Wright. And he's really going to double down on some of our thoughts about him in a way that builds sort of a bridge of empathy between the listener and Reverend Wright. And this is something that he's going to be doing throughout the remainder of his speech. So let's take a listen here as he introduces his relationship with Reverend Wright. I have already condemned in unequivocal terms the statements of Reverend Wright that have caused such controversy and in some cases pain. For some, nagging questions remain. Did I know him to be an occasionally fierce critic of American domestic and foreign policy? Of course. Did I ever hear him make remarks that could be considered controversial while I sat in the church? Yes. Did I strongly disagree with many of his political views? Absolutely. Just as I'm sure many of you have heard remarks from your pastors, priests, or rabbis with which you strongly disagree. But the remarks that have caused this recent firestorm weren't simply controversial. They weren't simply a religious leader's efforts to speak out against perceived injustice. Instead, they expressed a profoundly distorted view of this country, a view that sees white racism as endemic and that elevates what is wrong with America above all that we know is right with America. A view that sees the conflicts in the Middle East as rooted primarily in the actions of stalwart allies like Israel, instead of emanating from the perverse and hateful ideologies of radical Islam. As such, Reverend Wright's comments were not only wrong, but divisive. Divisive at a time when we need unity, racially charged at a time when we need to come together to solve a set of monumental problems Two wars, a terrorist threat, a falling economy, a chronic health care crisis, and potentially devastating climate change. Problems that are neither black or white or Latino or Asian, but rather problems that confront us all. Given my background, my politics, and my professed values and ideals, there will no doubt be those for whom my statements of condemnation are not enough. Why associate myself with Reverend Wright in the first place, they may ask. Why not join another church? And I confess that if all that I knew of Reverend Wright were the snippets of those sermons that have run in an endless loop on the television sets and YouTube, if Trinity United Church of Christ conformed to the caricatures being peddled by some commentators, there is no doubt that I would react in much the same way. But the truth is, that isn't all that I know of the man. The man I met more than 20 years ago 
is a man who helped introduce me to my Christian faith. A man who spoke to me about our obligations to love one another, to care for the sick and lift up the poor. He is a man who served his country as a United States Marine and who has studied and lectured at some of the finest universities and seminaries in the country and who over 30 years has led a church that serves the community by doing God's work here on earth, by housing the homeless, ministering to the needy, providing daycare services and scholarships and prison ministries, and reaching out to those suffering from HIV-AIDS. So here we're hearing Obama really going further into his discussion about Reverend Wright. And, you know, I'm, I'm just really curious, you know, Tracy, when you hear this, um, this sounds, I'm sure there are so many different opinions about this particular um, aspect of what he's talking about, you know, whether he aligns himself with Wright, whether he says, well, I'm still going to be friends with the man, but I'm not going to agree with his policies. When you were really reading all of the um, information that was submitted for the anthology, what were there disagreements about this? You know, what what was what was you know talked about? You know, with regard to with regard to Wright in particular. Well, I think there were a couple of essays who thought that um, um, essay writers who believed that effectively Obama let white people off the hook. Um, and that he was more concerned with white feelings um, than he was with the structural racism that Jeremiah Wright's um, sermon uh, was giving voice to um, and those frustrations. And so what people then understood, they had to kind of understand was that it was politically expedient for him to do so. And so that's the difference between a preacher uh, who's in the pulpit um, and drawing upon the Jeremiah tradition and a politician who's attempting to resuscitate his campaign um, by drawing on aspects of the African-American Jeremiah, but, but moving away from it by offering kind of instruction, not just to, um, uh, to white Americans with respect to who he is and why they should trust him, but also to black Americans and why we have to put aside certain of these quibbles um, that one might have with America and white racism um, in order to perfect the union and come together to solve these problems. Uh, and he lists large scale problems, climate change, a failing economy, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem again in, is that those issues you know, disproportionately impact African-Americans. And this is what Wright was getting into um, from his perspective, right? African-Americans, the poor, working class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, but what, what Obama does is a wonderful political, political maneuver by trying to say, let's, let's sweep this, these divisions aside in which there are differences in the ways in which these larger issues impact various communities. Um, and let's just come at this as an American problem and resolve these issues. And so, yes, there was serious um, kind of disagreement and critique around um, this strategic pivot um, from his discussion of right as saying, as him saying, well, you know, the, those were divisive, but the language was divisive. He also says that he characterized America as kind of static. Um, and that it had not evolved, which was not true, um, but it worked strategically again in the speech, um, as well as him saying that white racism was endemic 
um, to the United States, which Obama, um, as a uh, legal scholar who studied under someone like Derrick Bell, knows fully well that the idea that you can't, on the one hand, talk about the founding document of the nation that turns a blind eye to slavery, talks about original sin and racism um, that blinds people to people's very humanity and simultaneously say that white racism isn't endemic, that it was not um, particularly um, important and cohesive um, in the nation's founding. So there are extreme contradictions in Obama's beginning and by the time he gets to this, this critique of right with respect to white racism. Um, and so, yeah, so those are the kind of contradictions that kind of come to the fore in that middle slice. Right, and sort of along those lines right there of giving a pass to um, whites and white racism here, we have a m moment in this section here where Obama is almost able to make a bridge between what's happening here, this criticism of Reverend Wright and Obama, um, in a white listener's mind. What we hear is um, Obama talking about how this language was divisive and Reverend Wright is a man of his time and how we're only looking at the bad um, in America. The speech only looks at the bad in America and doesn't look toward the uh, allies and people who are trying to change the future as an optimistic look at America. And I can imagine a lot of white listeners might be thinking, oh, that's sort of like me. I know a lot of people in my past who are people of their time, or maybe in the past I may have done uh, racist things, but uh, people aren't giving enough credit to, you know, the white saviors or, you know, white people who are doing good in the world or the progress that we've made since all of those bad things. And so it's a way almost for Obama in this moment to use sort of coded language to bring um, a, a white listener through that thought process um, without ever explicitly sort of saying anything like that. Yeah, it's just it's fascinating how he's able to um, really play to all groups here. You know, I think that Obama has to make a strategic calculation. He has to know, OK, to what degree can I acknowledge what might be in a white person's mind um, and also have him not lose his base and not, you know, lose the support of the African-American community. And, you know, he's he's kind of walking that line here. And of course, he's going to be criticized, you know, for that. Um, but then again, you know, he would be criticized almost no matter what he did, you know, on this particular issue or topic. And so he's really just he's doing a lot of pacing here. And so this is, you know, there's no doubt that if I heard that thing, I would react the same way. So that's a little bit different than him saying, you know, it's true. He's not saying that. He's just saying, well, if I heard it the same way that you have been hearing it, but that's not the whole truth. But if I did hear it the same way that you have been hearing it, I would have reacted the same way. So it's this kind of as if frame that he places around it. And he's saying, well, this is the way as if if I believed it that way, then I would do the same thing. And in putting them in that alternative reality of what he might believe at that time, he's able to address the criticism, but without entangling himself, you know, within it um, politically and, and personally. 
All right, I think that's all the time we've got for today. Head on over to sublimallycorrect.com. In the top right corner, you can click on the Support Us tab and visit our Patreon page. Uh, chip in because remember, we do not run ads and your support is what keeps us on the air, especially in these troubling times. Now, if you love the show and you want other people to help discover the show, go to your podcast apps, particularly Apple Podcasts, rate the show five stars. It really does help other people discover the show. And we will talk to you next week.